Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I am here today with a lovely uh, thespian slash academician, I just made that up, slash teacher, Hugh O'Gorman, master, been acting and teaching for, for 30 odd years, uh, head of the acting program at Cal State Long Beach, right? I'm getting this all right, right? Because I'm kind of going off of memory. So far, so good. <laughs> Married to the super hot French architect. I've been trying to hook up a threesome with Hugh and his wife for years. I met them years ago. She was into it. I think he was hesitant, which is a first for me. Usually dudes are the first ones to pop into this. But, you know, the French are just more open. She's an architect. It's all about design and exploring the human body, especially mine. But I'm still going to work on it after we act professional for a little bit. Um, <laughs> Hugh O'Gorman, welcome to X-Ray. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I was, uh, I was captivated by you because I know that you teach. I've been fascinated by actors and acting, and I, I watch a lot of stuff. But you teach something called the Chekhov method. Now, I, initially, I thought Chekhov was that famous, depressing Russian playwright, right, with the sisters and everybody's losing a field. There's always someone dying. That's like the classic. But this is a different dude. This is a different dude, though, same family. So the depression, depressing Russian guy that you love so much, that's Anton, who okay. was Michael Chekhov's uh, uncle. So Michael Chekhov is the Chekhov who was the actor Okay. And Anton Chekhov was the Chekhov who was the playwright. Um, and actually Stanislavski uh, knew of Michael through his uncle, uh, because of, as you know, the, some of the first plays that were done at the Moscow Art Theater under Stanislavski uh, were by Anton Chekhov, the seagull being the first one. And of course the seagull, the image of the seagull is still on the Moscow Art Theater to this day uh, in Russia. Um, and he, Stanislavski uh, auditioned Michael Chekhov in uh, St. Petersburg in the late 1890s, I believe. Uh, and he, or actually around, no, sorry, it was about 1912 and he became a member of the Moscow Art Theater. So he became the kind of preeminent uh, character actor and leading man of the Moscow Art Theater okay. and played lots of roles under Stanislavski. And he developed his own technique of approach, which was kind of divergent from Stanislavski's, which is the one that's mostly taught in the United States and, and around the, you know, Europe and Western world. Um, and then Michael's is a psychophysical kind of departure from Stanislavski's psychologically based approach. Can you break down for me? So let me get this straight. I don't know too much about the history of acting. I know that the, everybody thinks the British are better at acting than anybody else for some reason. Yeah. I know that the Greek wrote a lot of plays and they had actors. And I guess theater started with those dudes. And then came the Russians and then the, the British uh, school of acting and theater and Shakespeare. That came way later. Or did Shakespeare proceed proceed the Moscow Art Theater. Just give me a little history overview because I'm a little, you know. Right. So Shakespeare definitely preceded. It was the okay. Elizabethan period. Um, and that was, a, it's a great thing you point to because in a way that's Hamlet's advice to the players is suit the action to the word and the word to the action, right? So when he's talking to his, he wants to figure out who killed you know, his father and all that stuff. He's giving the, putting on this play to trick his uncle. Um, and he gives acting advice, right? So the great thing about Shakespeare is even though he didn't have a technique like he himself, he wrote his technique into the language itself. So when you play Shakespeare, and in fact, I'm going to see a student of mine right now uh, this afternoon at, at, at Ellen Greer's, uh, uh, Greer's uh, 
Theatricum Botanicum up in Malibu. Uh, they're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream. And Lisa Volpe, who's a wonderful act actress here in town, is playing Oberon. And the great thing about it is when you're an actor in Shakespeare, Shakespeare tells you how to act the piece through the language he actually gives you, because he himself was an actor. Right. Um, but it's interesting that you bring up the Greeks, because I think at the heart of all actor training is the first, well, the name in ancient Greek for an actor is Hippocrates, which means hypocrite, which means you actually have to betray your own human nature to actually portray a character. And actually back in ancient Greece, the first union as an organized labor union. Right, was, like Screen Actors Guild, DGA. Exactly. I mean, let's give a shout out to the IATSE folks right now. Folks to the IATSE, the Greeks are, are with you. Yeah, <laughs> the Greeks are with us. And they had a, a um, uh, the first union called the Craftsmen of Dionysus because the first theater in ancient Greece came out of a Dionysian experience, which was really an agricultural uh, annual event. Isn't Dionysus the wine dude? Or is it's that Bacchus? Wine. No, it's the wine dude. No, it's, yeah, Dionysus is the wine dude. And uh, they, what the idea was is if you have a couple cocktails, you right. loosen up a bit. Loosen up. And your inhibitions go, and you can kind of get into a trance light state, which will bring us, I'm sure, to EDM later, right? There we go. We're going to talk about Sasha <laughs> and Digweed. Let me just correct me if I'm wrong. So, okay. Because there's a couple of things here that are interesting to me, and then I want to hear about the technique. So there used to be the the Elizabethan, the Shakespearean text, which doesn't really have any subtext where people are saying the words and moving the plot along, but it's more performative or presentational, right? They're not tapping into their, we don't know if they were in terms of their method, but they're not thinking about their dad hitting them in the face in order to get tears out. They're just kind of playing the words. Right. But then the Russians who came after, who are definitely a feistier bunch than the Brits. I mean, they're, you know, with their vodka infused passion, right? They're definitely a, a feistier people. This is, I'm generalizing, don't kill me. Then Stanislavski came along and it's more about really tapping into your inner rage and being authentic and tapping into your real, right? Like your own, your own stuff to bring to the character. You're not hypocritical. And then, so you have that, but then you have this, this Michael Chekhov, Michael, really? Probably Mikhail, right? Mikhail, right? No, Michael. Michael sounds like he's from Detroit. <laughs> Michael Chekhov, He's coming in and saying, well, you can also go from the outside in. You don't have to go from the inside out. You don't have to think about your dead cat. You can, you know, do something else. And then we have the method, which is even different, which is still different from the English school, right? Which wasn't, there's the American school, the Marlon Brando's of the world, right? The actor's studio. Am I making a big soup out of all this or is this making sense what I'm saying? Yeah, but you know, look, listen, a nice goulash, you know, everybody appreciates There we go, a little Russian rail. I like that. You tied it all together. So yeah, so guide me through it and tell me how that, that Stanislavski's technique is different and then, you know, and how Chekhov and then the method and, you know, and that kind of different schools of, of, of acting. Sure, sure. So, okay, fundamentally, Stanislavski is an extension of the empirical movement. So if you think about the, the, end, the end of the 19th century, you have Freud, you have science that's trying to organize in a methodical way, you know, Darwin, they're kind of put into a sequence, if you will, or a system, trying to systemize the world, basically, the empirical movement, to empir you know. So, so out of that, Stanislavski, who was growing up at this time, uh, and was a part of his, his father was an industrial um, uh, factory owner. So he had some, you know, moderate wealth and he, he had some means at, at that time. He would go to the theater and he would see theater that he didn't believe. And he was like, they're just indicating what we would say right now in modern parlance, right? Or, or he, it's mechanical acting. And then every once in a while there would be, he would go to an opera and he'd see someone like Salvini and he would say, what is this person doing? Because they're taking me someplace. They're trans. It's not just they're presenting something right. in a mechanical right. way. 
So his the whole if you, you want to kind of throw it all into a to a soup, the whole Stanislavski system is a reaction to um, Stanislavski and others not believing the the performances they were seeing. Sure. But at the same time, you have because fundamentally all transformational acting that's you know some solo performers in your own life. I know right? a few. I know a few. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> they're both the author and the performer. And in often case, the producer and the director. Right. And the director, the usher. The usher, the front of the house, the back of the house, costume <laughs> player. <laughs> but let's just say for the sake of this argument, you're fundamentally the author and the performer. So most actors are not the author. They're the performer. So our job is to go to the text and bring our imagination to it, bring our humanity to it, right? right? So at the same time that Stanislavski was beginning to investigate what it meant to be actually an actor and systemize it, we had a shift in writing into verisimilitude and psychological realism with, with the, uh, uh, the, uh, the arrival of Ibsen. Okay. Uh, right, and A Doll's House, which right. if you think about A Doll's House, it was a revolutionary play at the time. Because if you think about it, nobody up to that time sat in the audience, looked up on the stage. You know, you didn't look up at the Scottish play at Macbeth and go, hey, that's just like my life. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go kill the king. But wait today. a minute, but you're saying Doll's House, but you're saying at the same time that Chekhov's plays, they were, they were people were relating to oh. that, right? They were connected Chekhov to that. Was coming just on the tail of Ibsen and they kind of Oh, okay. It. So Ibsen preceded that. Okay. So when Nora slams the door and leaves in Doll's House, there was a friggin' riot in London when it first came out, mm. right? So because no, at that time, they actually looked up on the stage and went, oh, that looks like my living room. Oh, that looks like my <laughs> husband. Oh, that, oh shit, I can do this too. So we needed a system of, of acting that met the text because at the end of the day, it's the actor's responsibility to move the original source Okay, I'm getting excited, but there's- Please, uh, I'm getting, I mean, I, I I thought we were all coked up together, but I'm just loving yeah, this. They bring ahead. us back to the threesome later, but uh, <laughs> I get really excited. But um, so you, you like in a lot of universities, there's like styles of acting 101. Right. Style. Which is bullshit. Because yeah. if you play a style, it's fucking empty. But right. the only style is what's given to you by the author. So because psychological realism, which really perpetuates even to this day, most of what you see on television, film, and in most theaters, Stanislavski went, okay, now we need to find a method that dealt with that. So simultaneously to that, there was a French psychologist named Théodule Ribot who developed okay. or who discovered the repeatability of emotion. And Stanislavski read that study and got excited about it, the repeatability of emotion, which comes to what you were asking about, like your dead father and stuff, there's effective memory, like emotional memory, yeah. right? And so that's early Stanislavski. Okay. So when the Stanislavski Moscow Art, Art Theater tour of 1923 came to New York and took the world by storm in Russia, there were two actors that jumped ship, Maria Ospinskaya and Richard Boloslavsky. And they, they founded the American Laboratory Theater in New York City, which was the first place to really perpetuate Stanislavski's system. But oh, it's wow. early- What year was this? Like early 20s? 1926. 26, okay. So, well, at least in 26, we know that Lee Strasberg, who became the founder of the American method. So you have Stanislavski's system yep. and you have the American method. Okay. So when people say the word method, they sometimes misconstrue it as Stanislavski's system. It is the American adaptation of Stanislavski's system, but his early work, because Stanislavski ended up leaving that period of work and moving on more to the psychophysical of, you know, the thing you said earlier, you said, is it, it, it the question is, well, is actor training outside in or inside out? And the question is, or the answer is yes, 
Yeah. It's fucking, it's both. It has to be both. If you're in your body, if right. you're in your body. I mean, the question is though, he can, and I guess you can, but so, you know, can an actor give a, a good performance? Because uh, some actors are good with just imagining themselves in these circumstances without having to tap into internal trauma and make it personal, right? And other actors need to to trigger, you know what I mean? Like trigger something personal to get emotional. So uh, at the end of the day, there's no one way to act. Like, look, okay, you woke my ass up early in the morning, right? It's so early sorry. here in LA. So I apologize. A- don't be a <laughs> pussy. Go ahead. So there's, I don't know if you can see, but there's coffee in here. There was see coffee. It. Coffee actually exists. Acting doesn't. Oh, now that was a profound statement. You're going to have a lot of people in an uproar because actors have insecurities. A lot of people don't consider it a profession, except if you're living in London. You know, all these people coming off of Ohio on the bus to L.A. saying they're actors. And you're so, telling me there, there's no acting. There isn't. It's it's a big ruse. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what the ruse is? It's, it's interesting because I think for film especially, too, it's like you can fake it till you make it and still give a good performance. You know what I mean? Well, Music well, editing angles, fake, like, you know. Well, but you're asking like, okay, so acting doesn't really exist in the sense that we were born with the ability to do it. And in that regard, it does. So I think healthy actor training, what it does is helps each individual release their own creative individuality. And that's something Michael Chekhov says. I'm not here to teach you this objective thing, which you have to come over here and act this way. No, you're a human being with potential. It's a, it's a, you know, metaphysical given how, whatever you believe ability to do something, all children have it. And then it gets socialized out of us. Yeah. Yeah. So then great actor training helps that instrument go back to that place of availability and then meet literature. Right. That's all it is, really. So don't really? spend your money on an MFA program, guys. Don't go to Cal State Long Beach, get an MFA. Ah. Just go on YouTube, watch some tutorials, and just act your fucking heart out. That's what um, I'm saying. No, TikTok, I think it's true. Right? I think you want to get people connected to their body. I mean, look, I got to tell you, I'm always on the fence with um, advanced, not even advanced degrees or degrees in general in the arts you know, like creative writing. And I appreciate that people do that. Also, you want to teach. But when you people teach technique, like, what is that? You know what I mean? I guess you want to get people acquainted with their body and, and make them more open and, 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 and vulnerable and stuff like that. But there is no one technique, right? I mean, different strokes for different folks. Absolutely. But I will say, okay, so now we're getting into actual learning something, right? Okay. Which is not particular to an art form. It, it, so great performances can be given you know, in, there, when inspiration strikes, we're all fucking brilliant, right? Yeah, right? The problem is to sustain a career, you can't rely and wait around to be inspired, especially in our business. You know, the yeah. agent call, you get the, I, I, I got a self tape, it's gotta be in tomorrow morning at six. I need to have a way of working. Right. Confidence, confidence is the ability to go into, I mean, the word confidence is in Latin, confides, with faith. Faith in what? Faith in self, the ability to do something. So if I know, hey, you give me this task, I can go out and do it. If you ask a surgeon, hey, do you know what you just did in that surgery that I just came out of? Hopefully the fucking surgeon goes, yeah, I know what I did and I can explain it to you. But the problem is a lot of actors, you ask them and they go, uh, huh, I'm not sure what I did. Well, that may work a couple of times, but it ain't gonna work if you're a series regular. It's not gonna work over 30 years. You have, to, and if you wanna switch mediums from stage to film to television, you're gonna need a flexibility and a reliable technique that you can count on as you shift. But gears. what is, give me an example of a technique. Let's say you get a text that's gonna involve getting emotional. Again, if you're on stage and you have the time and rehearsal to be in the character and role and you're live, then I think it's almost easier. But if you have to kind of trigger something on film when sometimes the, other, the actor isn't even there, 
You know what I mean? You have to do it quickly and there's noise and there's blah, blah, blah. You have to audition. What is an example of a technique that will get to some, someone to that emotional place very quickly? Let's say they don't Let's have it. They don't want to tap into a childhood trauma. Right. Okay. So let me, because you keep talking about someone that died, the cat, the father, the childhood trauma. Yeah, I'm whatever. sorry. I don't mean to bring up no, dead no, cats. No, 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 that's what most people think. So I would say, I mean, what I teach is what I, what I believe in is in an ideal world, you shouldn't need to do that. Why? Because your trauma, your personal images aren't in the text that the author wrote. Right. So if you, if I go think about my bedroom when I was a kid growing up, and I'm all of a sudden on that image, I have left the reality of the place. Yes, yes. So in an ideal world, right. one is in one's imagination. And okay. it's what, so to give you an example, Stanislavski's, one of his greatest discoveries is that the, the doorway into the imagination is one word, if. Okay. And if you put an as in front of it, if I go, I'm Hamlet, I'm Hamlet. My brain goes, no, you're not. You're Hugh O'Gorman. You were born in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City on Fifth Avenue on June 11th, 1965. But if I go, it's as if I'm Hamlet, my brain goes, cool, we're playing a game. Okay. That little difference frees you up in terms of your ability to access your imagination. The problem is most of us in modern society, I mean, at least you and I of a certain age grew up still reading fiction. So right. we- like I read the Lord of the Rings long before the movies came out and, and Gollum in my mind was t- as much as Andy Serkis is an amazing actor. Yeah, and the was different. Gentleman, was more scary than the movie. Right. Because So the imagination is incredibly powerful. So, you know, is there one way to do it? No. So a lot of times like the actor studio, because Lee Strasberg studied under Maria Ospenskaya and, and okay. Richard Bolaslavsky, and that's early Stanislavsky, they taught a lot of that effective memory stuff, which I did. I, I did it with a wonderful acting teacher here in Los Angeles named John Len, who was the head of the actor studio out here. And there's a lot of valuable work in that. And I think sometimes for younger actors who are having trouble accessing either their imagination or their relationship to the text, a personalization that can be transferred, oh, this in my life is like this in the character's life. And sometimes I need to think of this image because I have to cry. But the problem is acting is not, we're not called feelers. Right. We're called, called actors. Right. Interesting. Action. So like you're sitting there right now, you're not trying to feel anything, but you are feeling things. Right. But you're not tr- feelings come along in the doing. So when we do, we feel. Now, the problem with trying to create an emotion is you've now taken all the attention in your prefrontal cortex. You've directed the target of attention over to a thing that you think you have to do, which is, pre- pre- you know, present a result that's emotional to meet the demands of the text. Well, that's not what the character is doing. The character is not doing that. So the problem in the business is, let me give you a very specific example. Okay. I, I, uh, met right after your friend and I worked together, <laughs> um, I shot a, a guest star spot on uh, uh, ER. Okay. And, and I, we got to the day, I was, you know, it was a scene where I, I was, it was a deathbed scene. I was going to die. I, I'd opened a letter bomb and my wife who was doing uh, abortions and I can't remember exactly. A lot going on there. A lot going on. A lot going on. And of course my wife and I met in hair and makeup like 30 minutes before 30 we minutes shot. beforehand. Sure. Right. So I'm sitting there. It's a, it's a steady cam shot. Anthony Edwards comes in, but we shot it a couple of times. The director comes up to me and goes, Hugh, can you do what you did in the audition? And I said, what I do? And he said, you cried. And of course, 
that's like the last thing any actor because well, it's terrifying and then it, you end up feeling like you're like making crying faces like kim kardashian crying faces and then ah. it feels fakey wakey right right yeah. so the question is what did i do what'd you do what did i do i looked at this woman who i just met and i acted as if i was saying goodbye to my actual wife who you know right so you did have to tap into a personal yeah right what did you tell me is that my imagination or is that personalization? I think it's a combination. I think it's semantics. I mean, I think it's a combo pack, you know? I mean, because if you were just imagining it was your wife, you wouldn't have to insert your, you know, tap into the feelings of losing your real wife, but you did have to imagine losing your real wife to get there. But here's the thing. You walk through the door. I think and the, beauty, the beautiful thing about being, well, there's lots of beautiful things about being an actor. I love actors because they they're so misrepresented and certainly in the media. Yes. They're really sensitive, lovely, caring, mostly kind of insecure, quiet people sure. uh, with imaginations. And they tell amazing stories. Well, that little toggle of me saying, it's as if I'm saying goodbye to my wife. I mean, even saying this to you now, it's moving me, right? So right. I'm not even trying to act, but I just think it's as if I say goodbye to my wife. Now yeah. I'm staring up with you right now. Right, right. And I'm not trying to act. Right. Well, you're showing off a little bit because you're tearing. The audience can't see. He's tearing up. He looks really emotional. It's all very moving. I'm kind of moved. I'm moved to tears in a minute too. So and I'm not even an actor. Right. So, but the question is, is that, I mean, yes, it's personalization, but in a way it's not because as an actor, the older you get, the more sensitive you in a way you get because you're like, oh, I've lived through some shite. And, and I don't, I, just, I could trigger myself left, you know, 50 ways left from Sunday. Like, I don't well, that's know. That's good that you have that. I mean, I got, I dabbled in acting a little bit, but I was not good at it. I'm a very emotional person. I will cry it from, from nothing. You know what I mean? I'll see a bird on a tree and I'll cry and I'll get sad and, and from anything, music trigger, you know, whatever I get going. But when I'm asked to emote, forget it. You know, if I'm put under pressure and someone says to me, you need to cry, I'm going to say, can you spray that? spray that shit in my eyes that makes tears and let's just go with that because at the end of the day if you want tears you're gonna have to spritz because they have that too don't they spritz something in people's eyes they, some sort they of do. they do yeah so yeah. fuck that or they can fix it in post now yeah they can just add cgi <laughs> tears um i was gonna ask so okay it's interesting to me this this uh michael Chekhov, mikhail let's just do it right because i know what i'm amazed at what i've learned as i've gotten older is that sometimes your body can affect your emote. Like you can control, you know how they have that study that if you smile, if you're miserable, you'll actually feel a little better because you're indicating to your brain something, right? You're putting, you're chewing a pen. I don't know what's happening there. What's going on? Yeah, this is, a, this is a study you're talking about. Oh, is it? Okay. So if you smile, folks, if you're feeling down, a fake smile will somehow send a signal to your brain that things are better than they are. So I feel like certain emotional, certain physical gestures can elicit uh, a visceral response, an emotional response, right? So I don't know, talk, so is that kind of the basis of, of the technique to some extent? To some extent, correct. The, the, the kind of catchphrase from, from Mikhail or Misha. As we Misha, let's call, oh, is that Misha? Misha comes from Michael. What, is, what does Michael mean? Is that a, a New Testament thing? I should know this, Lord oh, Jesus Christ. Now you're getting, that's out of my pay grade. I'm sorry. Well, you're Irish, <laughs> you should know this shit. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So Misha is actually the organization of the Michael Chekhov organization here in the United States called <laughs> Misha. Uh, so yes, so Misha has a, a, a phrase that a movement, perhaps the word gesture like you just used, plus right. a quality, in other words, how you move your body, okay, creates a sensation in the body. So if I go like this, if I do a tearing 
sensation and I, I made gesture, I do it with the quality of sensuality. Well, that's going to awaken something in me that's different than if I go, Thrah! right, still the same gesture, but how I do it creates a different sensation in my body. Now, the one step I'll separate out from the word you use, which is create an emotion. What we say is create a sensation. Because again, if you say, like you just said, I have to feel something, we all shut down. Everybody shuts down. Yeah, the pressure. Say, I'm going to move and how I move is going to create a sensation. And I may or may not feel something that liberates us to go, okay, we'll see what's happened. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, so. Okay, okay. I like it. I like it. And you found, do you find this technique works for better for the more limber actors if or if i'm personally a little more stocky and rotund and not as flexible is it going to be am i more locked in you know what i mean i always look at actors on on take the take the roids that work out too much i'm like they can't be good actors if you're too muscular because you got no you're not limber you got to be a little wiry don't you think you got to be able to have movement in there i think at the end of the day you have to have a relationship to your body where you can listen to yourself and be in t- literally in touch with your body, right? So I, uh, size, shape, doesn't matter. It's okay. your I mean, everybody's born with the same structural nervous system and the same kind of anatomical, more or less abilities. Now yeah. there are shapes and sizes, but the beauty of it is, is you, it's your body and you can move it to tell this. I mean, cause you know, you, at the end of the day, we're in the semiotics business. It's about signs and symbols. It's like, so how I move matters. It doesn't matter what I look like. I still have the ability to access myself under imaginary circumstances. And that's, what's important. I like this imaginary circumstance bit. I might do it on my next date. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I imagine as if I'm on a date with someone that's not a fucking bore talking to me about oh. their custody schedule for four hours. I think um, married, married couples may do that more often than non-married Yeah. Couples. Do you find, I, I've met a lot of actors. I do find them charismatic. I do find them super fucking needy. Uh, do you find that actors have to be, because I believe this is true for musicians too. They have to be a little tortured and damaged in order to, to be better actors, they can't be completely functional, normative, well-adjusted human beings. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. I, I would. I would say that I don't know if you have to. I don't know if you have to suffer to be an actor. I know you will. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. You have to be a little wackadoodle to get into it, and you know, and then putting yourself through all these emotional, uh, you know, the whole emotional rigmarole your whole life, and putting yourself in tough stuff. I mean, there's got to be some dysfunctional desire in there, don't you think? I don't. I think actually it's the most functional desire because at the end of the day, going back to your original question about the Greeks, the word theater means a teatron in ancient Greece, which means the seeing place, which mm. was an extension of the Dionysian um, uh, agricultural festivals, which morphed into the first theater that we know in theaters, you know, like the Acropolis and Epidolos in Greece. Um, which are still acoustically perfect to this day, some of these, which is architecturally wow. kind of extraordinary. They hold 14, 15,000 people and don't need a microphone. But the reason they were called teatrons um, is because we went to see a truth. So for example, the, the, one of the first plays ever produced in ancient Greece, the, the Persians, uh, was about the Greeks battle with the Persians. They used tents that they were left over from the war. Oh, I love that. Right. So and costumes from dead bodies. So they were purging and used to use Aristotle's language catharsis. They were moving through something because and this is why actors in ancient Greece were actually separated off and they were considered almost shamans. 
because they had to go tell a story. Like you said, I wouldn't say they were disturbed. They, were, they would allow the imaginary circumstances to disturb them publicly, which goes back to the original term of the word actor, which is Hippocrates, which means I'm a hypocrite to myself, to my true nature, by going out here and publicly letting everybody see me go through this thing that's not real, it's imaginary. But we all need to go through it because on a deep primordial level, um, like if you read the book, The Sapiens, um, it's that we have a need to relate to um, a greater existence, which is what brought people together to continue as tribes and tell the stories of the tribes so we can perpetuate. So on a deep, profound level, I believe we're so far away from being disturbed. We're actually, think about this. I don't think, think I don't say disturbed in a negative way. I want to take that back. I think that the actors and the arts is God's work. I think the arts, especially in the fuck in this fucking country, are underestimated. I really do. I really fucking do. I think that it, you know, in, enlightening and and having that resonance with people and illuminating stuff about the human condition, uh, and being able to identify it, like you said, and work through something. And I think that the actors willing to put themselves through that over and over again, you know, is no small feat. And the, hip, the hypocrite, hypocratic, whatever, hypocritical thing. I see it. I see what you're saying. I thought in two ways. On one hand, they're being presentational. On the one hand, you're saying, on the second hand, you're saying they're going against their nature by actually doing this to themselves, right? Like, let me, why would you torture yourself and put yourself through this every day? And I think that that's the art. And it's such a fine line between um, when an actor is, let's say, going through something traumatic on stage or on film, you still know they're going to be okay. And they're going to be okay at the premiere party afterwards at, at Beyonce's house. But if you see it and you see an actor like Bjork doing that Lars von Trier film where you know she's really falling apart, it gets uncomfortable. It's not cathartic anymore. It just gets fucking awkward. And I think that that's, that's the fine, you know what I mean? I think unlike well, porn where you want real, porn I want real. You know what I mean? I want them really, I don't want the fake until you make it. But with acting, you do want to remember it's artifice, but for a moment you want that suspension and disbelief and no, you know what I mean? I feel like they're authentically feeling it, but it's that dance, right? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean, but then I, then you're, okay, so now you're opening it up to, to almost genre and where does acting meet performance art and where, and what, what, so what genre are you saying psychological realism, which is most of what, so imagine the last two years without all the TV shows we had to watch. One of my favorite shows that I think I wrote to you about was the Israeli show Fauda. Yeah, that was um, a fun I, one. I didn't oh. like the, the latter season. I didn't, they lost me the last season, but I do like the first two. Amazing, right? And the yeah. acting, the story that, but pick a, everybody had their show. Now my kids are watching the, the K-drama Squid Game. Oh, I saw right? that is disturbing, but brilliant. <laughs> but Fucking brilliant, right? Brilliant. So, but with the Queen's Gambit or yeah. the Crown, whatever it is that you, sure. Game of Thrones, uh, we got through the last two years as a world. A hundred percent. We had to, we had to escape in a way. This was escapism in its purest form. But then, you you know, because you create yourself, um, Marina Abramovich is one of my heroes, right? Well, she gets slapped in the face a thousand times. Right. So you tell me, is that, where's that? Is that too far? Is that not storytelling? Is that art? Is that not Oh, no, I think it's equal art. I'm just saying, I think, but you know what it is going in. But if I'm going to go into something thinking it's psychological realism, I'm watching a drama but I'm worried about the actor, the, the actor, you know, not the character. I'm worried about the actor 
then it gets awkward. But I think, you know, because I feel like something's out of control. Something is unleashed in, a, in an unhealthy way as opposed to within the confines of the work of art. But Marina Bramman, I know she wants to get slapped 40 times. It's what she does, you know, shoot in black and white. That's a different, she's Looney Tune. Fi- go be wackadoodle. Go sit at the Museum of Modern Art for 19 hours on a chair and pee in your pants. Good for <laughs> you. Good for <laughs> you. But no, I, you know what? But I think it is, there is, it has to be a felt sense of safety and still take you on. You know what I mean? But I think that the, the good thing is we know these days, I don't know if we know, but I don't know if it's a good thing. I take that back. But the fact that these days, most shows, that's why people like international shows because they don't know the actors and there's a more of a believability there. The suspension of disbelief is a little easier, but with American shows, we have to have a star and you see the same people, you know, like you saw one thing today. So yeah, it's not as, you know, you don't get as deep in it because you remember them looking down. Abby chick is now a serial killer. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, so I feel like that's why we like those, you know, those crime shows in England where everybody's unattractive, but yeah. they all look real. We could, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. I believe, I believe we are in this shithole in Northern England in the morgue. <laughs> that's right. You know what I'm saying? To you, I went on a tangent. <laughs> Can I just show you my dinner? This is my dinner. I just bought a value pack. I'm going through these. Ah! Did you know there's, I'm holding a big box of Oreos. It says chocolate flavor. They don't even have real chocolate in this shit. But the sugar content is not, it's not crazy. Did you guys know this? It's not, it's not as much as you think it'd be. Anyway. Okay, but I have a very important question for you. Please. Do you twist and separate and lick the cream? Or do you bite in on the whole thing? And that'll tell a lot about you. Uh, You know what, Hugh? I cannot be pigeonholed. I do both. Like anything, I do both. Um, I'm not big on anal, so I'm put that out there. So I don't mean both in that regard. But in terms of Oreos, sometimes I'll twist it. I never lick the cream. That's vulgar to me. That seems very gauche. I will bite into the cream, but if once it's been dismembered, you know what I mean? So I'll just, how about you? Are you a twister? Are you a licker? What? Um, I like to separate the cookies with my tongue. And then once I've got them separated, okay. <laughs> Take the cream and on my front two teeth kind of go. Yeah, you want to feel that texture of that cream. We can call it right. You want to feel that there's something very satisfying and it's very nostalgic. I feel like it's before the health craze when cookies were bad for you. Yeah, it's um, it's your your version of your Madeleine from Proust. There you go. Look at you with the highfalutin references. (laughs) Who um, who is your. Who's your favorite uh, playwright? Do you have a favorite play or no? No. Well, if you had, if, if you like were torturing me and said, choose one, yeah. I would say Shakespeare. Okay. But if I had to put you on, a, on an island and there was one theater company that, that was very limited in their scope and they had one play in their repertory and that was the play you'd have to see time and time again till the day you die, what play would it be? Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Probably, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Like, come on now. I mean, one show, we're in purgatory now, right? I mean, or, oh, well, well then it would make sense to do uh, Sartre's We Clos. Okay. Uh, no exit. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Well, that's like watching movies about a pandemic during the pandemic or, you know, right. listening to the Smiths when you're depressed. Yeah. Like, are you the kind of person where that comforts you or do you want to see something out of Bollywood that has nothing to do with anything that you're going through? Yeah, no, I'm not much of, I mean, listen, nothing against Bollywood. I love a nice Bollywood production. Um, I would say, it, well, it's interesting. Let me explain it this way. In our house, we don't agree on what we can watch 
together. So rarely do we watch things together because the little, the 11 year old has one thing she wants to watch. The 16 has another. My wife cannot watch anything. That's like when I was watching Fauda, she would leave and go upstairs and like, see you tomorrow. Right. So it was uh, the violence was too much for her. Yeah. The whole so she thing. Couldn't she couldn't do the squid game. That's just one big barrel of blood. You know, um, <laughs> how, how have, this is an interesting question. Tell me if you're willing to answer it. How you've been teaching at uh, the MFA program for how long now? I'm in my 20th year. 20th year. Because I can't relate to younger generations at all now. I feel like it's a different planet between the social media and the attention spans and the TikTok and the lack of engagement and lack of social abilities. Maybe actors, hopefully people going to acting are still more connected to the world than the rest of the, the, their peers. But how has the population changed since you started teaching have you seen changes overall because it is a generational change already yes for sure but less on the mfa level because the actors that come into the mfa program tend to be more adults okay uh, and more on our undergraduate level and I'll, I'll point to a very specific study that came out not too long ago by dr gene twenge who wrote an amazing book called i i gen small i okay uh, G, capital G. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And her data-driven deep dive into that generation, uh, this, which, what she discovered was that the average, and I'm kind of generalizing the, the, the research here, but for sake of this, uh, the, the average freshman coming in at 17 or 18 into college now has the emotional maturity of a 13-year-old or 14. Oh, I believe that. And by no fault of their own. Um, of course, the biggest culprit is this thing right here. Yeah, he's um, holding up a phone, folks. Surprise, which, surprise. Which, which, um, which keeps them from socializing in a way that many of us of previous generations. And so because they have less what's called free range time uh, running around the neighborhood where their parents don't know where they are and they have to solve problems behaviorally in peer groups on their own, they right. don't have that kind of interaction. They break up with each other by, via text messages, right? Um, that holds them back emotionally in a way that is kind of detrimental to their ability to access themselves under imaginary circumstances because they're, they, you know, everybody's got trigger warnings now. And in many cases, they're, they're understandable and necessary. But university is one, the word universe is in university for a reason. Huh. Right. You're supposed to bump up against the universe and be triggered by lots of different things, by things that d you disagree with, that 100%. you vehemently yeah. disagree with. But now everybody's being sort of conformed to talk a certain way and say certain things. And if you, if you deviate from that, you, you've, you've left the safe space. And, and so I think it's really to a detriment of the students because I think I believe in something called training for adversity, which is you need to bump up against the things because if you're waiting for the sunny day, what are you going to do for the rest of the time? So, um, so there is a problem there is, but, but this being said, like I have a great group of undergraduates right now, they're incredibly sensitive. They're helping me understand their relationship to gender fluidity and identity, sure. the way our, our generation never talked about. Right. And, it's, and so they're really super sensitive and smart in many ways and aware on a global level that we weren't, and also on a personal level and an individual level an identity level. So it's a mixed bag, right? There's, there's a lot of great stuff and there's some challenging stuff as well. Yeah. I think it, I think that, you know, and again, I don't know what Europe is like. We can only judge about America. I find American 
most of the Americans are infantile to begin with. You know, I think that, you know, I've traveled a lot and I've, you know, met people all over the world. And I do think that some sort of civil service, if it's not military, then some sort of civil service before kids go to college would be a good thing. Thinking bigger than yourself. Maybe everybody has to do Teach America or volunteer at a hospital for you, whatever the fuck it is, grow up outside the confines of your parents' basement. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, well, woman up it, and man up, but if, if the character in dork whore uh, and that character's experiences in the military, any indication, I think everybody should go. To That's the exactly right. He was referring to Iris Barr's dork whore traveling through Asia, trying to lose her virginity. A delightful read. Highly recommend. No, but I think that you're right. I think that you have to train for adversity. And I think there's something to be said for kids that are becoming more open with who they are. I think that sometimes people are overcompensating when they're younger, trying to over push that too young. I think you have to be ripe to do it. But again, I don't, you know what I mean? When they're asking first graders, if they, what their gender identity is, I feel like you have to also acknowledge the brain development and take time. But if a kid knows already, once they're two years old, they know fine. I respect that. You know what I mean? I do. Um, but I think that there's something powerful about that, that kids can really, you know, try and find themselves. But the trickier part is really, yeah, how do you relate to the other? So I know that they may be more adept at relating to themselves and what they want, and how they, but how do you relate to the other person? And I think that that's this isolation and all this phone bullshit is definitely not good for that. Um, no. You know, I think that David Mamet, who I like his plays, I don't like his thoughts on acting. I don't want to hear your thoughts on acting. He's kind of a douchebag when it comes to that stuff. So I get a little like, oh, rolling my eyes, like, come on, David. But um, I like a lot of his plays are just monosyllabic. They are quick reads. So I like that in that sense. But um, what do you think? I know he's like actors should just say their words. That's their only job, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if it's worth repeating, but what do you think about him? Did you get angry when you read that book? <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't give him the, I mean, listen, I agree with your assessment in terms of his, his playwriting, uh, but not his actor training thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, he doesn't believe actually in, in from, depending on which book you read of his uh, character, right? The character doesn't really exist. You should just walk in, say the words and get out of the way, as you just said. Right. I do not agree with that. I obviously don't agree with that. I think there's much more to it. Um, but what he's talking about is there is some truth deep down in that, which is you want people to get out of their own way as they act. And part of the part of actor training and part of why I think sustained training programs are helpful for many actors is it gives you literally thousands of hours to practice that. Um, whereas if you're just out in LA trying to take a weekly class, you right. know, unless you're extraordinarily driven, disciplined, and uh, you know, uh, I don't know, willful, uh, a program, a training program, gives you the the grounds and the time which to practice. So, okay, well, there's a plug for Cal State Long Beach. You should apply next <laughs> year if you can't. Get that funding, get that scholarship. Maybe you can bribe somebody and get in on an athletic recruit and become an actor, even though you're on the crew team, whatever people have to do these days to get shit done. Um, are you still acting on the side? Do you still go out for auditions and shit? I haven't in, in a while. You know, I've got two young, amazing, beautiful daughters yeah. who are growing up quickly. And, uh, you know, I, the, I did a show back in, you know, I did, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago. And it was like, oh, that was great. But I was away from my family for a long time. Yeah, so you I don't just... want to do that. Yeah, I hear you. You kind of morph into something else, right? I mean, it's always there if you want. I love talking to you, I find it <laughs> really delightful. And you're also a big EDM guy, right? Oh, uh, yeah. You've been a raver for years. Do you, do you take like ecstasy? I don't know if you can admit that if you're teaching, ah. but 
What do you take when you go dance? You just go sober? That sounds rough. Well, right. So last night as uh, DJ Sasha was in town, I think there's two there's two hues I listen to. Frivolous hue and responsible <laughs> hue. And responsible hue won out last night. I did not go to the concert. I love that you still tap into that, even though you're old. I mean, I like that. It's good. I think the kids are getting younger. And younger. Sometimes you'll see like a nine-year-old at one of these raves, right? Oh. With the glow sticks. I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. But it's what you're talking about. I mean, you know, now it's a little different with COVID. You got to think about, you want to be in a nightclub with a lot 100%. of people. Exactly, right. So, but, but there's something about that to go back to this thing you were talking about, this communal experience of people being together, of moving together to, I mean, the reason I love EDM, not all of it, but is, the, is literally the baseline and what uh, you're with literally at times, hundreds, if not thousands of people. Uh, and it's an extraordinary experience. And yeah, there's always the psychedelic aspect. And I think, you know, <laughs> I, think this, I think the psychedelics are actually making their way into mainstream society in a way that, you know. Well, therapeutically they are. I mean, yeah. people are exploring shrooms and microdosing and ketamine. Micro and there's all this stuff that's happening. Yeah. yeah. Ayahuasca. Yeah, and ayahuasca. And I think, you know, there's a tribal kind of primordial aspect to it that's really powerful. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's repetitive and monotonous in a lot of ways. So sure, psychedelics help you uh, navigate that. <laughs> Go past 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> I think there's something very, yeah, you said primordial, primal, whatever you want to call it about that beat, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I never thought about, maybe I should have thought about this. Sometimes I have these insights I think are so profound. But everyone's like, yeah, isn't that obvious, Ray Lynn? But there's a, a song uh, I forgot what it's called. I'm going to try and remember. It's called Weightless. I forgot. the Marconi Union. So the band is called Marconi Union. It's Weightless. And this neuroscientist did a study that the song is extremely relaxing. And, and when people on MRI scanner, it actually lowers the cortisol levels and everything. What happens is your body, when you're hearing a beat, your heartbeat will match the beat that you're listening to. And so this song, this Weightless, starts off in a certain, you know, BPM, and then slowly, without noticing, go down. And so that's how that effect of relaxing. It's almost like psychological gesture. I'm sure Michael will be very pleased with this. So I think that there's something about we're all sharing the same heartbeat. We're all in that same beat. And it literally is a, a mutual heartbeat. It's like when women cycle together. Well, that's not a whole, that's a whole other thing. But um, that's what it is. So I really didn't realize the correlation between the bass or the beat and the heartbeat. That's all. Is that, yeah. is that insightful? Or did you know that already? And you're like, Raylan, really? It sounds, it, it, that backs up to my experience. Yes. Okay, good, good. I'm going to go eat my 45 Oreo. Well, there's only two left. Okay. I'm going to huh. dive into these. Uh, if you want to read more about Hugh O'Gorman, just go to HughOGorman.com. You've got a very somewhat rudimentary website. I'm sure you can snazz it up. Get your architect hot French wife to do something there. Throw some graphics or some photographs. Um, I don't mean to objectify anybody, but I do anyway. I can't help it. I'm fighting the urge. If you could recommend uh, three books on acting that I can buy uh, and read uh, in the next couple of weeks, could you do that for me? Sure. Well, I'm going to start with my new book. There uh, you go. Plug it in. <laughs> Thank you for teeing that up. Uh -huh. That's right. <laughs> and it's called Acting Action, a Primer for Actors. And it is up on my new website. At oh, Hugh there you go. Okay. It's still HughOGorman.com? It is, yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, that's a book that I kind of wrote based on my time apprenticing with an acting teacher named Earl Gister, who had been- I, head of I know Earl, I met Earl. So he, Earl- He got that, he had that tracheotomy thing. He'd be like, I don't believe it, do it again. Yeah, and so he and Lloyd Richards, uh, who was the first African-American director to direct on Broadway, 
uh, for Raisin in the Sun. Um, they studied with someone named Paul Mann, who was a member of the group theater, who also studied with Michael Chekhov. So um, the, the world and the lineage is very uh, tight and you know, kind of being passed down by generation. But those gentlemen, Lloyd and Earl, that is, never wrote a book on the work. Okay. So and thinking through all the years I've been teaching now, I think the one thing that they were teaching, which is called playing action, which is how you make the other actor feel under imaginary circumstances, is really the doing that we have to do on a very basic level. So I wrote that, um, and that has also a rehearsal process called Active Analysis in it, which was the end of Stanislavski's life that he and Maria Knebel developed together, that she actually named it Active Analysis, which is where Stanislavski ended up at the end of his life. So I would recommend that book. I would recommend another book called The Actor and the Target by Declan Donnellan, who is the artistic director of the British company Cheek by Jowl. Oh, uh, I've heard a, of them. Yeah, they're extraordinary. And Declan and his uh, partner, Nick, who is uh, a, a designer, also have a company in Russia, a dance company. And that book, The Actor and the Target, is extraordinary. It's a deep dive into kind of our attention and, and the target of our attention and wherever our attention goes, our energy flows. And it's really extraordinary. And then a third book. Well, Michael Chekhov's To the Actor, I would say. Okay. Uh, great place to start because it's really a comprehensive psychophysical approach to actor training written by arguably the greatest Russian actor of the 20th century. So, Go Michael Chekhov. <laughs> um, I remember a uh, shout out to Bruce Katzman, who I ended up working with because he was Earl's kind of protege and he That's taught right. and it was always an interesting thing to hear him speak and i know he did dealt, dealt with check off a lot when i dabbled into the acting thing and he was like yeah how do you want to make the other person feel and that definitely takes the attention off yourself and i think that's a good thing in life too i think especially for people that are insecure um want to get out of your head you got to put your attention on the other person and hopefully you don't want to make the other person feel shitty all the time you know what i mean ah. in real life i'm saying you can do that on stage but i think it is a good it's a, a good modicum of, of uh, behavior in general um all right i'm gonna pick up those books i'm gonna pick up hugh gorman's but unless you can you know i'll, you know, I'll buy it i'll buy it i'll support ah. i'll buy a fucking book i love you hugh uh check out the other episodes check out uh hugh you'd, you'd be fine and interesting i uh, interviewed this guy baba keshti who does ayahuasca on a very frequent basis and he really kind of talks you through it and goes into it. if you're interested in that i don't know if you've done it i know in, in la they're getting bigger and bigger all these ayahuasca shamanic circles in someone's house in silver lake but it is interesting, and and uh, yeah, was that DMT? Is that the chemical that's in ayahuasca that is a naturally occurring chemical in the brain? I'm too scared to do that shit, and I don't like puking, so I don't want to do that. But ah, me too. Um, it's like I don't want the purge thing, but purging, I guess, is part of it. But it's it really there's an amazing, amazing results you get from that stuff. Amazing. Have a lovely Sunday morning. Go back to sleep. Thanks. Uh, give your your wife my love. Tell her I'm, I'm still here if she wants to explore. And uh, and and good luck to you, my friend. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Oh, thank, thank you. you, Hugh. This is Raylan Casper-White signing off.